Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Good morning. I think everybody needs to take a turn trying these slides thing, so shout out to you guys, like all the pressure, you know, making sure you guys have the lyrics right there, and then when it glitches out, now I don't feel so sorry for them, so or so, so uh, I don't blame them so much for it, you know, stuff happens, so uh, maybe you can take your turn and then you will be more appreciative of how much they do, so. Um, all right, uh, last week, Rico was taking us through the command in Luke chapter 13, Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, and he focused on that word strive or struggle or work hard, and he emphasized that it's not working for our salvation, but it is, uh, you know, our salvation is only by grace, but our striving uh, actually indicates that our heart is transformed and that we want to follow Jesus, but, but it's hard work following Jesus, and there's a battle against our sinful desires, and uh, so this was uh, last week's message. If you didn't catch that, you can find that online. Now today we want to consider the same command, but from a little different angle. We're going to focus on that word narrow. And what does it mean then for the door to be narrow? Well, does it mean that only skinny people can get through? You've got to start working out, you know, squeeze it in so we can get through the narrow door. Fortunately, no, the narrow door is just a metaphor, so uh, actually let's start by defining that metaphor. Uh, Entering the door is the illustration, and so what is that representing? Well, this door that Jesus is talking about here is the way into the kingdom of God. Uh, We see that down in verses 28 and 29, that those who enter through the door are entering into the kingdom of God. Now, I really wish that we could spend uh, a whole time talking about the kingdom of God and whatnot, but I think for now, just a little simple definition will have to suffice. A kingdom is basically that place or that realm where the king exerts their rule or authority, right? That's how we understand a kingdom. And so God's kingdom, as Dallas Willard helps describe it, is the range of God's effective will or uh, that place where his will is done uh, on earth as it is in heaven, Uh, as we pray in the the Lord's Prayer there, um, that God's, where God's, where, what God wants done is done, uh, as we pray. So uh, Jesus then is busy leading this kind of a subversive movement here and inviting people out of the kingdom of Satan, sin, and death and inviting them into God's kingdom. So then The the metaphor striving to enter through the narrow door means becoming a citizen of God's kingdom. It means living under God's rule, means living with him as your king and as your master. And this actually is is true life. It's what Jesus describes as, as life, eternal life, and not just everlasting life, as in it goes on forever, but eternal quality of life, even now. Uh, in the present. And so uh, living in God's kingdom is actual true life uh, as opposed to kind of the living death that uh, is offered through sin. So uh, this is the the metaphor. Like I said, I wish we could unpack that whole thing. Um, But the door then is the way into the kingdom of God. So 
That's great. That sounds pretty good. True life. But where do we find this door? How do we go through it? Uh, so in John verses, chapter 10, verse 7 through 9, we see Jesus using a shepherding metaphor. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So Jesus himself is the doorway to get us back into right relationship with God, to become citizens of the kingdom of God. He's not just the gatekeeper, as if he were like a bouncer in the club, you know, keeping certain people out and letting certain people in. Uh, He actually is the way. You go through him to get to the Father. Because what he did in living a perfect life and in dying the penalty of sin and raising from the dead, you can't do that for yourself. So believing in Jesus, believing in him, you're accepting his life, his death, and resurrection as on your behalf. And so Jesus Christ himself is the doorway that we go through to get to the the kingdom of God. All right? So what makes this this doorway so narrow is the fact that Jesus is the only doorway into the kingdom of God. In John 14, uh, Jesus' disciple Thomas asks him, Well, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said the now famous memory verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way, and he is the only way. So in a way, it's kind of like a lot of the places here in Namibia. You want to go to this particular place, and there's actually only one road that gets there, uh, maybe. But you know these uh, map apps? Do you use those things? Uh, They actually teach us otherwise. If you kind of plug in your destination, then it's going to come up with three or four different routes to try and help you get there. Okay, well, here's maybe the fastest route. This one's maybe the most fuel-efficient route, or here's the scenic route. And so there's lots of different ways to get to where you want to go. Uh, And unfortunately, I think we often do that, uh, the same thing like that in our spiritual lives. We start to read the Gospels, and we hear Jesus say things like, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Wait a second. Uh, Hard? Did you say hard? Or Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the battle that Rico was talking about last week, wrestling against our sinful desires. Hang on a second. I have to deny my sinful desires and die to myself? John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or John 16, 22, you have sorrows now. Or verse 33, in this world, you will have troubles. Oof, wait a second. Persecution, sorrows, troubles, that sounds really hard. Surely there has to be an easier way. Surely there's a way to get to true life where I get to be in charge, where I get to be my own master, where I get to live the soft life and be comfortable. Surely there's another way. And so we try and come up with lots of different other ways to try and get to God, but in the end, they don't cut it. They're like shortcuts that lead to nowhere. 
I've done this so many times driving around. I you know, pass them like, oh, I swear, if I just turn here, it's gonna, I'm going to get there short. It's going to be a shorter way, and then it turns out to be a dead end, right? Have you ever done that? Yep, uh, I see all the wives nodding their heads, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, so what I want us to consider is a few of these other ways that we try to get to God, but that actually don't work, but that are actually dead ends. And then I want to show us how Jesus really is the only way because he is so much better than all of those other things. All right, so that's what we're going to try and do today. We together? See where we're going? Okay, so let's start with what we're going to call pluralism. Uh, pluralism, as you can see, comes from the word plural, which means more than one. Uh, this is the view that there are many different ways to get to God. Perhaps you've heard it said like, uh, oh, we all really believe in the same God anyway, right? God is up there on the top of the mountain, and there's lots of different trails, lots of different paths that get up there, but ultimately we all end up in the same place. Or maybe you've heard the parable of the six blind men and the elephant. Well, one of them, each, each of them is touching a different part of the elephant. Uh, one is feeling his tusks, and he says, oh, well, that's an elephant is like a spear, or another feels the trunk and decides, oh, the, the elephant is like a snake, and another feels his ear and believes, oh, the elephant is like a fan. Another is hugging its leg and suggests that, oh, an elephant is like a tree. Another feels its tail and says, oh, an elephant is like a rope. Another feels its side and it says, oh, no, an elephant is like a wall. And so uh, the pluralist says that just like these blind men, no particular religion has 100% uh, full view of the truth, that everybody just kind of understands their own little piece. And so it doesn't really matter which way you take, everybody's experience is equally as true and legitimate for you. Now, that view can sound really attractive in today's kind of postmodern world, uh, because that means then we don't need all this, all this religious arguing and fighting. You don't have to go out there and try and convert anybody, or you don't have to go and tell anybody that they're wrong. We can all just get along, right? But is it true? Can every way be the right way? Well, no, uh, for a few reasons. Let's start with the law of non-contradiction. Okay, we're going to do a little philosophy here today. Let's try and keep up. Uh, the law of non-contradiction says that two contradictory truth statements cannot both be true in the same way at the same time. So if I were to say, the chair that you're sitting on today is made out of plastic and metal, and then I were to also say, the chair that you're sitting on today is made out of wood. Those are two contradictory statements. <laughs> so they can't both be true. Okay, common, seems to be pretty common sense. All right, uh, but let's think about this in terms of world religions. World religions actually make contradictory truth claims. So Buddhism, for example, would say that the universe, the material, is eternal, that it, it had no beginning. But religions like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all say that the world was created. It had a beginning. Christianity says that Jesus died on the cross. Islam says that Jesus did not die on the cross. He, he just got really, really close. Okay, So they're contradictory statements. They can't both be true. 
So pluralism actually shows that it doesn't really understand worldviews very well because the deeper that you dive into these beliefs, then the more you see how they contradict each other and they can't both be true at the same time. Or another point. Uh, as we already read, Jesus claimed to be the only way. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just there, Acts 4.12. Uh, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Christianity explicitly claims that Jesus is the only way. So if Christianity is true, all the other religions are false. But pluralism says Christianity is true and all the other religions are true. So it's actually saying that uh, then, okay, all the other religions are, are false, if that's what Christianity says, but then all the other religions are true. So even in its own philosophy, it doesn't make any sense. It contradicts itself. So the philosophy of pluralism actually defeats itself from the get-go. Okay, so then people will say, wow, oh, that makes Christianity so exclusive, right? You say that Jesus is the only way. You guys aren't very tolerant. And you know these days that the greatest sin is not being tolerant. But I think that actually that statement couldn't be farther from the truth. Christianity is actually the most inclusive religion ever. Anyone is welcome, right? There's no discrimination based on age or gender or ethnicity or language or religious background or sin issue. All are welcome. Anybody is welcome to come and believe in Jesus. We're not excluding anybody, but if you want to come in, you have to go through the door. And there's only one door. That's Jesus. So, Jesus is better than pluralism. Uh, there are others, another door that I think people try to go through to get to God, I'm going to talk about here, is actually their ancestors. Or perhaps we could broaden this out and just say cultural traditions. Uh, this might be more relevant for some than others. Uh, perhaps your cultural tradition has passed down those things that uh, supposedly help you to stay in a good relationship with God. Maybe you've been taught that it's the family members that have passed on before you who now speak to God on your behalf. Uh, as long as you kind of appease them and keep them happy, then they're going to put in a good word for God uh, for you. Uh, in other words, that they, they kind of mediate between you and God. So for some, that means taking an important occasion or decision to something like a holy fire, or maybe it means when you drive by a grave, you got to stop and put a rock on it. Uh, whatever it is in your particular cultural tradition that uh, we have to do to try and keep that mediator happy uh, with you. But again, let's evaluate this based on scripture. Uh, first of all, this idea of Consulting the dead is, and all this kind of spiritual superstition is expressly forbidden in Scripture. Look at Deuteronomy 18. It's very strong here. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer. Can we add sangomas, other words that we could use in there? Uh, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
So if they weren't going through their ancestors, then how were they getting to God? Who did they go through? Well, in this very same passage, just the, a few verses after, in verses 15 through 19, God sends prophets to speak to the people for him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, uh, for, your, for your brothers, or from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Specifically, God said that he would send a, a singular prophet uh, and the, who, is, who is like Moses, a prophet like Moses. And uh, Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophetic role. He speaks uh, for God because he literally is God in the flesh, right? We see in uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was both God and human. He was God in a human body. And so that makes him uniquely qualified to be our mediator, to speak to God for us and to speak to us for God. As it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator between God and mankind. So no matter how moral your ancestors were, Jesus is better. Because your ancestors were still sinners who need a mediator for themselves. But Jesus was tempted in every respect that we are, and yet he never sinned. No matter how honorable or how good of a name your ancestors had, Jesus is better because he has the name that is above every name. Jesus, not your ancestors, is the only way because he alone is the mediator between God and mankind. So what then does the Bible have to say about our deceased relatives? Well, if they are in Christ, then they go to be with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it's far better. So departing from this life means being with Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5 says that uh, being away from the body is being at home with the Lord. So those who have died, they're, they're not still continuing on this earth, influencing things and whatnot. They go to their eternal homes. Those who are apart from Christ to their just punishment, those who are Christ's followers go to be with him. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 1, describes the dead in Christ as a great cloud of witnesses. Here he's using a, a race metaphor. So the idea is that uh, those witnesses are those who are sitting in the stands, right, cheering on those who are running. So our deceased relatives don't become our mediators, but they're just fellow runners with us. They've just crossed the finish line a little bit before us. So your ancestors or your superstitions, your cultural traditions, they can't help you get to God. Jesus is the only door to God. Okay, one more that I want us to talk about. There are plenty of other ways that people try to get to God, but I want to just touch on one more here because I think this one is actually really Christian sounding, and I think it gets a lot of us. So another wrong way that people try to get to God is by being good. 
We think that, oh, well, if I just follow God's law, if I just do all the right things and don't do any of the wrong things, then surely God's going to be happy with me. If I'm religious enough, if I read my Bible and pray and go to church, oh, yeah, then God will have to take me in, right? It's like this Christian karma thing. Or maybe, maybe up here, intellectually, you know, oh, yeah, we're saved by faith, but you live as if, in order to keep God happy with you, you have to keep following all the rules. And so then we actually take this to the next level. We get really proud about our rule following, and then we look down on those who really aren't as spiritual as us. We get so, so zealous for the law that we start to impose our interpretation of it onto others. And then just to be super spiritual, we actually add a whole bunch of other things on top of God's law. Right, so we start to regulate dress code and what people eat and drink and how they worship and how people consume media. And, and then we speak out very uncompassionately against those people's sins. We demand repentance. We demand rule following. Otherwise, we label them, oh, it's backsliding or maybe you're not even Christian at all. And so what we do is we make the law the doorway to get to God. <laughs> and that makes actually us the gatekeeper, doesn't it? Right? Because unless you're following all the rules and you're, unless you're a good moral person, according to me and my understanding of the law, you can't get into the kingdom of God. There were actually a lot of Jewish people in the New Testament times who had this view, understood things this way. Uh, they wanted to force people to obey the Old Testament law in order to become Christians. And the New Testament authors would have nothing to do with this. They were very strong on this point here. Uh, Romans chapter 3, For no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Galatians chapter 2, Yet we know, uh, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And again, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And again, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. But the law cannot be the door. You know why? Because you cannot follow it. The trouble with legalism or law following is that it's actually a, a mirage. It's a fake. It's like when you're out in the desert and you look a long way off and you see that little water hole out there and then you finally get there and there's nothing. It's, it's a fake. You think that what you have is righteousness, is self-righteousness, but it's not. It's a fake. Because our righteousness ends up being entirely dependent, it's upon, dependent upon the standard that we compare it to. So what we do, right, is look around at other people and we say, uh, oh, yeah, well, compared to that person, oh, they're totally, they're so sinful over there. Compared to them, I'm, I'm pretty good. And obviously we pick somebody who's a little lower on the righteousness scale than us, right, so that we look pretty good. But God's law reveals to us his character. It teaches us not only behavior that aligns with God, but also it teaches us about God's heart. It teaches us God's perfect holiness, his perfect love, his perfect mercy. When we start to compare ourselves with that standard, how are you doing now? Okay, so then we try and be selective, 
Right? We say, okay, well, well, I've never committed murder, I've never committed adultery or fornication or homosexuality. And you uh, selectively avoid those ones about coveting, gossiping, lying, keeping your promises, loving your neighbor. But James chapter 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, then you've become a transgressor of the law. So when we can stop comparing ourselves to others, when we stop being selective and compare ourselves to the fullness of God's perfections, we don't stand a chance. We can't obey it completely. But, in fact... That's actually the whole point. That's the point of the law. Look again at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, since through the law becomes knowledge of sin. So you see, the law doesn't show you how good you are. Oh, you know, look at all these rules that I'm following. I'm so good. The law actually shows you how bad you are, because it shows you all the ways that you don't follow it. Romans chapter 7. Uh, verses 7 and 8, For if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. See, the law wasn't given as this list of requirements to obey in order to be saved. Rather, it shows you that you can't obey it. So if the law was the door then we would all be hopelessly locked outside. But the good news is that there is provision for that. In the Old Testament law, they would bring an animal sacrifice. You can read all about it in Leviticus. Many people's favorite book, I know. Get into Leviticus there. The animal died in the place of the people, taking their penalty for sin. So in that way, the blood of the animal covered over their sins temporarily for another year. But that system was just temporary, thankfully. We're not here killing goats and sheep and stuff. It would get a little bloody. The author of Hebrews uh, actually calls it a shadow. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So those animal sacrifices couldn't actually remove the sins of the people and make them righteous. It was only a temporary covering, postponing God's wrath. Okay, That's why they had to keep offering them year after year. So it's like if you were to owe a debt to somebody, and they were to come back to you, oh, you got to pay me. And you're like, oh, please, just give me a little more time. I'm going to pay you back, I promise. Right? That promise just kind of pushes that debt down the road. And then they come back to you, and they oh, you need to pay me. And you're like, oh, I promise, I promise, I'm going to be. You're just pushing it down the road. Eventually, that debt's going to come due. You're going to have to pay that debt. 
But for now, you're just pushing it down the road with your mostly empty promises, right? Eventually, God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. But these sacrifices just keep pushing it down the road. So that brings us to another beautiful purpose of the law. Do you see there in in verse 1, the author spoke of the, the true form of the realities. The law was just a shadow, but the reality was the good things to come. So imagine you're in a room, and the sun is shining outside, uh, and I'm about to walk through the door. If the sun is behind me, what's the first thing you see? The the shadow, right? It casts a shadow uh, into the room through the, the light of the doorway there. And maybe if you know my silhouette, you might be able to see the look at the shadow and see, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's my coming. And then I walk through the door, and it's like, oh, yeah, see, there's Mike. What, was, what, what the shadow was just predicting is now here in the flesh because I've walked into the room. Well, it's the same kind of thing with the Old Testament law, that it was a shadow or a picture pointing us to Jesus. This is what he says in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures, okay, that is the Old Testament, because that's all the scriptures they had at that point, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So they thought that their obedience to the Old Testament law would earn them eternal life. But Jesus says, no, the law isn't the door to eternal life. It's only pointing you towards the door. The door is Jesus. They should have read the Old Testament law. They should have seen all the pictures so that when Jesus came onto the scene, they would have recognized him. Another way to say this is to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he doesn't just toss the law aside entirely, but actually fulfills everything that the law requires. What it was in picture, Jesus is the true reality. So consider, uh, the law requires one of two things, right? Either you have to follow it perfectly, or for the lawbreaker, you pay the punishment, which is death. Those are the only two ways to satisfy the law. Now, Jesus is literally God in the flesh, right? We already mentioned that. And so Jesus was the only person ever to obey the law perfectly. So he fulfills the law by obeying it perfectly, but then he also fulfills it by paying the punishment on our behalf. Like we said, within the law, God had made provision for this substitutionary sacrifice. But Jesus fulfilled those sacrifices by being the actual reality that those things were only a picture of. Everything that they did, Jesus did, but better. Let me run down a little list for you. You can read about this in the book of Hebrews. I highly recommend it. Uh, They had priests who were of a Levitical order from the Levites. But Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. You can check that out. They offered animal sacrifices. Jesus offered himself 
as a sacrifice. They took animal blood into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple later. Jesus took his own blood before God in heaven. They kept making these sacrifices year after year after year because it only covered sin, not removed it. But Jesus' sacrifice was once for all because it actually removed sin. Those priests had term limits because eventually they would die. Jesus continues to intercede for us forever because he rose from the dead. Uh, Those priests were always standing because they continually had work to do. Jesus, his work is done. So he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So the Old Testament law was the shadow. It was the picture pointing us to the ultimate reality of those things, which is only fulfilled in Jesus. Do you remember a few weeks ago, if you were here when Paul Gunning was preaching, he talked to us about the coin of salvation. It has two different sides, justification, imputation. Do you see then how Jesus actually fulfills and provides for both of those things? Jesus fulfilled the penalty of the law in that he died uh, on our behalf, and that provides for our justification, that the penalty was forgiven and so that we can be forgiven, we can be declared righteous, justification, but also his perfect obedience of the law is the righteousness that is then imputed to us or credited to our accounts. And so we can be counted as righteous because his perfect obedience is considered as ours. So Jesus' fulfillment of the law provides for both justification and imputation. So why then, legalist, would you ever go back to the shadow, to the picture? Why would you ever try and get to the get to God by going through the law because the whole point of the law is that you can't do it. The beauty of the law is that Jesus did it. Life is not found in following the law. It's fake self-righteousness. It only leads to death. Life is actually found in recognizing that we are hopeless to fulfill the law. We are entirely in need of God's grace. We we need to throw ourselves helplessly on his mercy through faith in Christ. As I was preparing for this message and thinking about these things, I actually heard a different message, and it reminded me of Paul's perspective in Philippians 3, which I think is helpful for us here. He lists off all of these great things that he could boast about, including things like his rich family heritage, his zeal for God, even his good law following. He says, if anything, or if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, us New Testament readers have a negative connotation there, but for them, that meant, meant that he was a professional at studying and following the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Again, that sounds really bad to us, but remember that to the Jews, Christians were heretics because they thought Jesus was the Son of God, so it shows his zeal by persecuting them. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, it's not to say that he was morally perfect, 
in God's books, but in human eyes, there was nothing that could be, he could be accused of. We couldn't find anything wrong. And so if anyone could have gotten to God through the law, Paul was the guy. But then look at what he says. But whatever gain I had, all those good things that he just listed, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, all of Paul's good law following, he piles that all up over here and he calls it rubbish. Literally dung. He says it's worthless. It's not an asset to him. Right? Actually, it falls in the loss column doesn't get him any closer to God. But the only thing that is of great value to him is knowing Christ. That's the supreme value. You see that? Surpassing worth. Only in Christ can he have real, true righteousness. It's not a mirage. It's not a fake. Because it's not his own righteousness that comes from following the law, which is not actually righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness that's credited to his account through faith. So you see, that's why Jesus is the only way, because he's the only one that fulfilled the perfect requirement of the law. And that righteousness can be yours not through your own hard work and efforts to follow the law, but through joining yourself with Christ by faith. His righteousness can be imputed to your account. You know, funny thing, as I was thinking about this, uh, about that legalistic gatekeeper, you know, he's there with his checklist saying, uh, nope, fornicator, get lost. No, prideful, manipulating gossip, no entry. You not very religious, tattooed person who wears ripped jeans to church. Nope, not welcome. But the gatekeeper himself is on the outside. Meanwhile, Jesus is around the corner saying, come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Fornicator, forgiven. Prideful, manipulative gossip, your sins are washed away. Not very religious, tattooed, ripped jeans wearer. Here, come to me and clothe yourself in my righteousness. I am the door. I have fulfilled the law on your behalf. Come through me. So with that in mind, I want us to close off by going back to Luke and reading the rest of that passage. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. And then they'll begin to say, oh, we ate and drank in your presence. We, and you taught in our streets. They thought they were all good. They thought that they were in God's kingdom because maybe they thought, oh, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Everybody gets in anyway. Or maybe they thought, well, my ancestors will help me get in. Or maybe they thought, well, my good behavior, my good law following, that's going to get me in. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. They're going to be really disappointed because whatever they thought the door was that they were trying to go through, that they thought was the right way to get in, but it wasn't Jesus, so they get cast out. Instead, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. It should have been you, he's saying to these guys. It should have been you because you know better. You have all the pictures from the Old Testament pointing you to Jesus. You should have recognized that he is the door. He is the way. But now a lot of people, a lot of other people are going to be there instead because they recognize that Jesus is the only door and they went through him. So, please, don't be on the outside looking in. Come through Jesus, the only doorway. He's the only way that leads to eternal life. So I'm going to pray for us, but if this is new to you and you need to talk to somebody about how can you find the way, how can you go through Jesus, then please talk to me, Rico, Sabella, JP. Uh, find the person who invited you here today and go through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to confess of the many ways that we try and get to you. We want to, a need to throw ourselves helplessly on your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for providing a way to be in restored relationship with you through Jesus. I do pray that uh, each one of us would uh, leave behind all those other things that we try and use to get to you and just pursue recklessly knowing Christ and being joined together with him. We thank you so much for your, your provision. We thank you so much that Christ is better. Pray that we would all find that and cling to that and grasp that this morning. Pray all this in your name. Amen. This is Rico Veca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.